Hi everyone, welcome back to Coffee Break Science. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Joe Worrell, who did his PhD in the field of molecular oncology, where he primarily studied genetics. So looking at the role of chromosome segregation in cancer progression. And he currently works at a pharmaceutical publishing agency where he coordinates the development of clinical and scientific publications between medical doctors and the pharmaceutical experts and scientists. I'm really excited to have Joe with me today and I hope you enjoy listening to his story. I'm your host, Dr. Asen Ostolo, a junior postdoc working on mucosal biology in London. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so lovely to have you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I've been excited for this conversation. Oh, I've been excited to talk to you as well. So can you introduce yourself to the pod without leaving out any of the good stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Joe Worrell. I've been working in and around science and biological sciences for about 12 years, which might date me slightly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I really got into science at the end of my A-levels, so I kind of chose scientific A-levels um, because they were what I happened to do best in at GCSE, and yeah, I just pursued um, a biology degree, undergraduate degree at the University of Leeds following my A-levels. In my undergraduate project in Leeds, actually, I worked with a really interesting supervisor Dr. Jürgen Denecker, and um, I worked with him twice, actually, one-on-one during uh, my time at Leeds. So he was very gracious enough to help me apply for a kind of a summer internship, um, some funding so that I didn't have to get a summer job. Instead, I got some funding to do some work in his lab, and then he was gracious enough to let me return to his lab for my final year project. So both of those were kind of in the area of plant biology. I didn't have a specific interest in plant biology or cell biology or plant cell biology combining both. I just felt that his demeanor in lectures was just so captivating and engaging that I would apply to be in his lab no matter what he was doing. And he was so encouraging. I've got many great stories about Jürgen, but he was the one that really prompted me to continue in science after my undergraduate. So based on very little praise, he said something to the effect of, oh, you've done really great work here. You should definitely consider doing a PhD. I would recommend you just apply straight away. You could apply for master's, but, you know, that's an extra year and some extra costs. So, yeah, just go for it. Just apply for some PhDs. And so on the back of his advice, I kind of applied for lots of different PhDs all over the country, lots of different areas, still not narrowing down what kind of interests in biology I had in particular, just following Jürgen's advice. Yeah, and after several failed interviews, I managed to get a position at Queen Mary University of London in the Barts Cancer Institute. So yeah, from years 2013 to 2017, I was in Barts Cancer Institute doing my PhD. Uh, There was a kind of one-year stopgap between finishing my undergraduate degree and starting at BCI. During that time, I actually filled that with another lab project up in Edinburgh. So I was a research tech, just a normal salaried job in a lab for about nine nine to 12 months while I was waiting for my PhD to start. And that's kind of where the PhD story 
begins, which I guess if you have any questions about before, during or after, I'm very happy to get into it. Amazing. Thank you, Joe. That's a brilliant walkthrough of your undergraduate to PhD sort of journey. Thank you for that. It sounds like you traveled around quite a bit through that like that process, starting off with your degree in Leeds to doing your a lab tech job in Edinburgh and then coming down to London for your PhD. What was that process like for you? Obviously, at that stage, you're kind of just finishing off. I guess everyone moves yeah. for their degree at some point, but then like to move quite far far I mean relatively far from Leeds to Edinburgh for your first kind of job after graduation and then all the way down to London which is you know at the other end of the country what was that process like for you as a fresh graduate? It's interesting you notice that yeah because when I look back I really have crisscrossed most of the UK. Leeds is kind of bang in the middle I'm from Manchester so that's like a lateral move and then up to Edinburgh down to London is yeah the full length and breadth of the country. Um, I think I mean, the move to Leeds was absolutely fine. That's a 60-mile journey. And, yeah, I'd already had familiarity with the city. I have some family that live in the city, so I'd, I'd been to Leeds several times before. So, yeah, doing an undergraduate degree close to my hometown was absolutely no problem. You can get there on the motorway, 60 minutes, no problem. Moving to Edinburgh, I had never been to Edinburgh before. I really just applied to a job in Edinburgh because... Yeah, the lab sounded like they needed someone who had experiences that matched my own. The requisites, the prerequisites for the job kind of weren't too extensive. And it would, in my opinion, allow me to get some good experience before starting the PhD, which was obviously going to be full time in the lab. So I kind of moved to Edinburgh, I want to say, on a bit of a whim. You know, the first time I saw the cities were when my dad drove me up there in the car and we kind of moved a few boxes of stuff into a kind of a house share so that was that process was a bit daunting new city new job first one after the degree I didn't have any friends there um, so that was quite a challenging experience going into my first nine to five job in the laboratory with only just my experience from undergraduate it was quite overwhelming um, luckily it was quite a small friendly lab environment so there was one other postdoc who was working there no PhD students. I was the only tech that they had employed. So it's basically just a three-person team, the supervisor, the PhD, postdoctoral um, graduate, and myself. And he was super supportive. So he kind of showed me the ropes of everything in the lab. Um, he had previously been there for his PhD. So he knew where everything in the lab was. He knew the projects intimately. And yeah, he basically took me under his wing and kind of showed me the ropes. But yeah, it was quite challenging overall. I'd say just the distance uh, from my family and friends made things quite hard. I moved in the middle of an Edinburgh winter, uh, which, yeah, was very cold and gloomy uh, for a while. Edinburgh spring is beautiful. Uh, and then by the summer, I was starting to feel much more confident, which is unfortunate that I had to then leave, you know, three or four months later to start the PhD. Because, you know, just when you found your feet in the lab and the project, then you're kind of moving again. Moving down to London, I think, was actually quite a bit easier. Because, yeah, I already had some friends that were living in London. So instead of moving into a random health share, I moved in with them. And with, you know, nine to 12 months lab experience under my belt full time, you know, I was feeling much more confident about starting uh, the PhD than I was before Edinburgh. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that you moved to London, like knowing people already here, because obviously a one year job is difficult, but a PhD 
is a much more arduous and challenging journey. So I'm glad that you had at least friends to be around um, during that. So something that I picked up while you were talking was the the fact that you went from, so your first research project during your undergrad was in plant biology and you speak very fondly of the supervisor that you had during that project, which was actually quite nice to hear because I myself also got into lab-based research because of someone's demeanor in a lecture that I was so inspired by that I felt that I could go up to them and ask if I could do my summer project with them and they were so open and encouraging Um, and that gave me my first glimpse of cancer biology research in the summer of 2016 I think which is when I actually met you so yeah I was wondering how you went from that plant biology research to your PhD which I know is in um molecular oncology at Bart's Cancer Institute. I know you mentioned that you apply to a whole range of different projects across the country, which of course, like PhDs are so competitive that you have to kind of do that. And I have to say, it's very inspiring that you went straight into uh, a PhD from your undergraduate degree without doing the master's. So how did you go about choosing that PhD um, project that you ended up doing at BCI? And do you feel that the lab project that you had at Leeds as well as your lab tech position equipped you enough for that PhD journey or did you ever find that you missed the opportunity that MSc people may have had during a slightly longer project? Yeah it's it's a great question so I think from my time in Leeds I actually really enjoyed cell and molecular biology experiments as opposed to kind of other methods of uh, scientific research like in silico or maybe you know certain animal models Um, I really liked working with the plant cells in the lab because they were so easy to work with you could repeat experiments very easily with kind of very little or no ethics approval needed and you could do quite a range of different experiments on plant cells so I felt like I wasn't very limited in the choice of experiments and the equipment that I could use with them so that really was the foundation for what formed the basis of my choices for PhD projects. So um, when I was looking for PhD projects, this was yeah, like 10 years ago now. So I think the website was called findaphd. Maybe I'm getting that <laughs> slightly wrong. But on there, you can basically just put in a few criteria, I think like uh, funded or not, uh, location, and some keywords. So I think I, I typed in, you know, cell biology, molecular biology, and basically had no location preference. Like you said, they're very competitive. So I, I didn't want to hinder my chances at even getting an interview. I thought if I can just apply, get a few interviews under my belt and see where the, where the chips fall, that would be the best approach. And then if I got any offers, I could kind of choose to accept or reject later. <laughs> Probably not the best approach. Some people might be much more specific in their applications that, you know, they have a very specific supervisor in mind or they have a very narrow interest but because my background was just cell and molecular biology and I have a broad scientific kind of fundamental interest in most aspects of human and molecular biology I just thought apply for what you can and see where the chips fall so I think in total maybe I applied for around I've still got the folder on my computer maybe 15 or so PhDs I think I got for about eight I flopped the first seven uh, and then on the eighth one I think yeah the combination of the prior interview experience and just the, the match with the with the project and my experience allowed me to yeah be successful in that application 
So, yeah, it was a bit daunting and a bit nerve-wracking actually going to so many interviews and getting told kind of a straight-up no, or you can almost tell before you finish the interview that it's not gone very well if you haven't communicated clearly. Yeah, so that took some perseverance. And, yeah, my, my energy and mood and motivation was definitely feeling deflated kind of on interview eight. But when the supervisor said afterwards that she really liked me and that it would go to a panel interview, I thought, wow, I've made it through to round two here. And I think just that extra confidence boost of having the the reassurance from the supervisor saying, I like you. Now we just need this other kind of panel of scientists in, working in Barts Cancer Institute to kind of approve you. Um, I think my natural kind of enthusiasm for science kind of came across. So, yeah, that's kind of my non-scientific process for getting and obtaining interviews that's amazing I can't believe you got eight out of 15 application interviews that's a really high success rate for PhD interviews congrats and it must have been a really tiring process because I only had two PhD interviews and I didn't I'd applied to I think around I, I don't remember how many I applied to maybe nine or ten but not getting the interviews is just as upsetting so then when I got the two I was like oh I really have to make these works because these you know they don't come very often so it's amazing that you got I mean I guess it's great interview practice but it must have been really tiring so it just shows what an impressive candidate you are on paper and in person so well, actually, I'm interested. It's interesting you bring that up because I think what really helped, like you said, I didn't have any master's experience, but I think what did help was that I had that summer internship with Jurgen in Leeds. So, because that was a competitive intern kind of scholarship with the Wellcome Trust, so that's kind of a, a very well established name in science. People know that it's competitive, and Jurgen had managed to create such a great application for that with me that really, not on my own merit, I was kind of awarded that. And Jürgen already had a project set up. So although I didn't have that kind of six two six month block placements that's traditional for a master's degree, um, I did have kind of that internship the three months over the summer and then the promise of nine to 12 months in a research environment before I would start. So I kind of I think I managed to twist their arm just by a combination of those two things because, yeah, they are super competitive. Well, um, yeah, a welcome trust funded internship is definitely very impressive so yeah no wonder I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your PhD process um, can you tell us briefly about what your project entailed and during that process what your favorite part of the PhD was it doesn't have to be the project itself but just anything you learned from it or yeah, what do you remember most fondly when you look back at that period yeah absolutely I'll try and give some some kind of background for the listeners so I'm sure most of them have a scientific background, so I hope I'm not going too layman with this. But the short summary is that, of course, when cells are damaged or injured or worn out, they require replacement. And the only way to do that on a cell biology level is to take an existing cell and to have it divide. And one fundamental assumption of that is that the genetic material in that cell must be replicated and then separated equally into both of the, the new cells produced. My project was in the field of molecular oncology, which is just a fancy way of saying cancer at a cellular level. And mine was a specifically a genetics project. So I was interested in understanding how cancer cells divide their genetic material and the process by which in some cancers this goes wrong. So a common feature of cancer cells is that the DNA is not divided equally in each daughter. So there might be a whole chromosome 
that goes into the wrong, you know the wrong cell or parts of chromosomes, and that's known as aneuploidy. And so overall, my project wanted to understand if the chromosomes that did missegregate, if there was something intrinsic about those chromosomes that made them missegregate, because obviously chromosomes are very different in terms of their size, large to small gene density, their shape is slightly different, and their position in the nucleus. So maybe those things would affect which chromosomes were more likely to missegregate during DNA division. We actually employed quite a few novel techniques that uh, both m myself and my supervisor had not worked with before. So to assess the rates of missegregation of these different chromosomes, I had to use a very sophisticated piece of laboratory equipment. I was fortunate that our lab was one of only two in London and one of only six in the whole of the UK to have this machine at that time. And using that machine, we could evaluate those rates of chromosome missegregation on a cell-by-cell -cell level. The project, although I didn't obviously know it was going to go in that direction from the start, that I was going to be using this really sophisticated, expensive piece of equipment, it actually turned out to be a super interesting project for me because it married two of my interests, which was kind of the science aspect of it with the technology aspect. So again, like, you know, every young boy, I was fascinated with kind of lasers and yeah, lights and just switches. So seeing this big bleeping machine in the lab that no one else was using, but I was using and seeing that it was like shooting lasers at the cells in different colors up to 12 at the same time, it was kind of, yeah, just fulfilling my scientific and technology, uh, technological curiosity. Yeah, that's, that's basically the, a short summary of, of the project. Super interesting. So was that your favorite aspect of the PhD, the uh, sophisticated technique that you got to kind of lead in the, basically in the country? <laughs> it was. And I was, I think that was my favorite part. And I was the most proud of that part because that came at my suggestion. So for a bit of context, I think I had a bit of a rocky start to my PhD because my supervisor actually was um, pregnant like in a final trimester on the month that I started. So I think three months after I started, she left to go on maternity leave. And it was her first um, research grant that she'd been awarded funding for. So she was still an early career researcher herself. So she still had the, a very small lab. It wasn't established. There wasn't loads of postdocs uh, to provide additional support. When I joined the lab, it was only uh, my supervisor, again, one postdoc and me. So it's very similar to the situation in Edinburgh. But when the supervisor leaves and the postdoc, it's her first position as well. She's trying to you know, push forward on her experiments and that kind of left me to my own devices. So although the project was initially set up in a way that you know, we had a plan for those nine to 12 months that she would be absent from any kind of formal supervision, when things weren't going very well in that first year and the data wasn't you know, looking as we expected and I was struggling to even perform the experiments competently. Um, when I managed to come up with this kind of new technique using this fancy piece of machinery to kind of sidestep the problems that I was having, when she came back and I was just showing her all this cool tech and these cool results, we both got very excited about it. And yeah, a, a lot of kind of sub-experiments led on from that initial effort on my part to, to solve a problem, a practical problem that I was having with my experiments. So yeah, that was definitely my most proud moment. That's an incredible story, Joe. I never, I didn't quite know the details of how you did your experiments, but it must have been, I can't even imagine how difficult it was when, you know, your, your supervisor ends up going on maternity leave for 
relatively early stage of your PhD when you're still trying to figure things out and finish the troubleshooting and the optimization. And then your group, there isn't even that many additional people to support you. So that must have been incredibly difficult, but I'm glad that you were able to kind of turn it around and generate some exciting data. That's really wonderful story to hear. So leading on from that, I guess like that, that must have been a challenge in itself, but obviously the whole PhD that there's ups and downs and it's a very long road and more of a marathon than a sprint. So if you don't mind sharing, what was one of the biggest challenges that you faced and like, what were your strategies to kind of overcome or at least deal with them? If you don't mind sharing. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of the problems that I was having were born out of not having a lot of direct supervision. So because most of the time with a PhD student, you have kind of weekly meetings or bi-weekly meetings with um, your supervisor, you're able to troubleshoot experiments as they go along. They come with a lot more experience than you do. They've obviously had, you know, 10, 15 years of bench side research under their belts. So, you know, even just simple things like troubleshooting PCR or troubleshooting a Western blot, it could be something silly like the voltage is slightly off, you're running the gel the wrong way, um, you're not doing enough extension cycles on your PCR. Just small things like that. You know, every time I had a problem, I had to try and figure it out myself or ask people around me, you know, in the PhD kind of students room, if they were having similar problems and how I could troubleshoot them. But I'm quite introverted and sometimes I'm not very good at asking for help. So I'd often spend several days at a time, a week or two, just troubleshooting one experiment, kind of like, yeah, a monkey with a symbol, just bashing the same thing over and over again, trying to get it to work, just tweaking one variable at a time and repeating the experiment, which was yeah quite demotivating. You know, you think you've found a solution and then it doesn't work. So you try something else and it doesn't work. You try something else and it doesn't work. So I think that that slow, repetitive grinding process was probably the bit that was most challenging due to lack of kind of expert input on what might be going wrong with the experiment. So you asked how how do you kind of deal with frameworks or ways to troubleshoot that? I think involved, yeah, a lot of communication. I think science doesn't happen in isolation. Um, it happens built with strong communication with the people right around you, immediately around you, and with the body of science that's already published. So I'm thinking of one particular experiment in mind where it did take me like two or three months of just doing the same repetitive trial and error. And I was just continually reading, you know, different papers, reading their methodology, yeah, trying to understand why they were doing certain experiments the way that they were doing them. And, you know, could I take some of that and use that in my own experiments and just through a very slow laborious process of reading a lot of painful methodological sections of research papers I was able to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together myself and realize where I was perhaps going wrong with my own experiments and yeah just put them together so I think yeah the advice would be keep reading all the time even if you think you know the experiment and the protocol really well keep seeing how other people are doing it yeah and don't stop asking the people around you for help because it could be something really simple that you've just missed and you could save yourself weeks of time and effort just by asking someone that's really useful advice yeah it's just so difficult when when people who are supposed to be supervising you are just not around for you to be able able to ask these simple questions and you have to look up the most you know basic of problems because then instead of reading papers to look for new ideas to take your research to that next level you're having to read papers just to solve the methodological issues that you're having which it must have been incredibly 
frustrating and demotivating and time consuming for you. But I guess, you know, a PhD is all about learning how to learn. So in that sort of sense, you became an expert, not only in molecular oncology, but also like how to solve a problem and, you know, fix things that aren't going the way that you need them to go. Which actually leads me to my next question. We haven't spoken yet about what you currently do, which is working in a pharmaceutical publishing agency, which I'm really intrigued to hear more about. But I'm also wondering how you came to the realization that you wanted to leave academia or the field of molecular oncology to go into the medical publishing industry. So could you talk to us a little bit about your decision making process and how you came to that realization and kind of the steps that you took to get to that, get to your current role? Yeah, I'd like to try and pretend like there was some kind of rigorous uh, self-reflection and a detailed uh, (laughs) kind of plan for me. Um, I've always been a bit more impromptu than I perhaps like to show. So I can't say that the decision-making process was too extensive. I think I boiled it that I tried to kind of distill it down to the the very basics were um, I was I think by the end of the PhD I was frustrated that the time and effort you put into the work in the lab didn't always correlate with results and output so you could spend several weeks on one experiment and through no fault of your own the cells weren't cooperating the experiment didn't work and you yeah basically have to go back to square one So I think I was frustrated by the time-intensive nature of it. I was also frustrated by the fact that inevitably with science, you have to repeat everything twice once you've found something interesting, which of course is the scientific way, and I wouldn't change it. But I think I was quite frustrated that, yeah, you can do things three times and you know pretty much what it's going to be the third time, but you still have to do it anyway, which although it's good for science, it's kind of quite frustrating and tedious to be doing the same thing repetitively particularly if it's a long experiment that can take weeks. So I think that was a criteria that I wanted to move away from academia because I felt that in a normal, a quote-unquote normal nine-to-five job, the effort that I put in would likely be correlated with direct outputs that I could measure. So in my current role, if I write twice as many words, I've written twice as many words. There's no room for kind of debate about you know, the output there. The only thing that can go wrong is if I'm having a bad day and the words that I don't write, you know, or the words that I write aren't up to to the required standard. But that's very much internal, intrinsic to me and not due to external factors. So I tried to reduce my frustration that way. I think the second thing, which actually on reflection probably wasn't or shouldn't have been such an important consideration, is that I think I was worried that the nature of a postdoctoral position, it was kind of a two to four year position. And I was worried about um, the prospect of moving every two to four years. So, yeah, I, I think I wanted a bit more security that if I wanted to stay in a particular job for several years that I could. And there wasn't like an expiry date on, on the position or the work that needed to be done. Um, and there was kind of a bit more security in that aspect. But like I mentioned, I think on reflection, that was probably misguided because three three years doesn't sound very long to complete a project or to be in a job but when you're actually day-to-day in a job three years is quite a long time and so realistically most people if you look at the statistics and their LinkedIn profiles you'll see that they either get promoted and change job role within the same company or they go to an entirely new company or they do move city anyway you know even more frequently than a postdoc would 
So in a way, a postdoc counterintuitively allows you more job security because you are just fixed in one place and it's you kind of obliged to get those research outputs to, to be useful to, to the lab. So I think in reflection, I wouldn't have put so much weight on the job security element. But yeah, just for the for the listeners, so pharmaceutical publishing is quite a niche area that I hadn't heard of before. I think when I finished the PhD, I wanted to go into a job slightly ego, egotistically that required a PhD, you know, that I wanted to see that in the list of job prerequisites on the specification form and I wanted to see PhD desirable you know uh, experience in a lab (laughs) (laughs) otherwise I think the trauma post-traumatic stress of you know finishing a a difficult (laughs) PhD I wanted it to feel worth it um, like I'd achieved something that was valuable to an employer so of course a postdoc they're all even in the name, you know, postdoctoral researcher. Um, so I think I just went on Indeed and typed in requires PhD or something like that, and just science, just just science. So it was like the PhD application process all over again, just <laughs> kind of blindly selecting jobs, any job, science, PhD, done. Yeah, and there were several that popped up, but what kept popping up was um, medical publishing, medical writing, just uh, medical communications. Loads of jobs where there were just agencies that were helping pharmaceutical companies publish their research or write up their research, um, but without having to do the experiments themselves. So my current role is helping pharmaceutical companies publish their data from clinical trials. So they don't publish it themselves counterintuitively. When you see a clinical trial paper that's funded or sponsored by a pharma company, they usually hire an external agency to develop and write the manuscript. They do that because they need to help analyzing all the data. They need help contacting external key opinion leaders and doctors to coordinate the development. Yeah, it's quite an involved process. So day to day, I'm kind of sending a lot of emails back and forth, analyzing data without doing any of it myself. But yeah, I feel a bit more autonomous than I did in the PhD. But that was the the long-winded way of saying there was no process. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a cool story. Thank you for sharing. And it's interesting that you said, you know, that you feel that you have more autonomy in this job than you did in your PhD, because normally, or certainly what I worry about if I leave academia is like in pharmaceutical industries or just in the scientific industry in general, that's not academic. I worry that I will lose that autonomy of having like my project and my little thing that I get to, you know, lead and develop and like present and all that kind of stuff that that's the thing that worries me so it's really nice to hear that you still you know have ownership of what your role is kind of leading and also it's refreshing to hear that you didn't necessarily have it all ruled out for how you wanted to get your post PhD job because generally speaking like it worries me that I'm now maybe six months into my postdoc my first postdoc and I'm still like a bit unsure about what I'm going to be doing next year or, you know, the year after that or the year after that. And I'm just kind of testing these different roles and seeing if I enjoy it. Because it feels like some people towards the end of their PhD, they either know that they're definitely leaving academia, they're going into pharmaceutical sort of companies or startup biotech kind of places. But it's nice that you're, you know, with the very successful kind of journey that you had from your Welcome Trust funded internship to your your oncology PhD, you were able to make a career out of kind of just looking at 
PhD and science job more generally and like finding something that you thought you could use your PhD and skill set to bring some value into so that's really yeah it's nice to hear that um that you don't have to necessarily have it all planned out from A to Z and I'm quite surprised that actually that you didn't because uh like you said you don't come across (laughs) as someone who would do things on a whim as as much as I yeah I didn't think that you would um Okay, something that I want to quickly ask you about before we wrap up, and you haven't mentioned it, is the tool that you developed for biological and medical students called The Examiners, which is like a study tool. I'm not sure if you have an app, but I know that it's a website that generates flashcards. So can you talk to us about how you came to generate this very useful tool and like how it's going for you at the moment I know that you said that you had an interest in tech so I'm guessing that that's kind of how you came about you know creating this as a one-man kind of team but yeah I'd love to hear more about that please yeah so that's it's quite an interesting story actually so of course when you're living in London on a PhD stipend um, it wasn't particularly well funded. You hear some sometimes of the, you know these lucky students who get the super duper funding. I was on the lower end of that spectrum. So particularly in London, I was just looking for an extra way to make a little bit more cash. So just some backstory. So I actually started doing some tutoring because I quite enjoy presenting science. I like talking about science, and communicating science, and I like talking to students. So I was doing a little bit of teaching in the laboratory and someone suggested to me in the lab, oh, why don't you take a look at doing some uh, online tutoring, you know, for kind of university students. And that sounded right up my street because I'm a little bit lazy intrinsically. I had heard about A-level tutoring before, but I knew that A-level students need a lot of kind of preparation and materials, teaching materials. They often come to you with kind of vague learning objectives and expect you to make the material, whereas university students tend to have a lecture and a narrow focus. You know, I don't understand slides 7 to 12 in this lecture on enzyme biology. Um, So that kind of very much appealed to me because I could do it on a freelance basis. I get paid weekly. The salary was actually really good. I think the rate was about 60 to 65 pounds per hour, which really kind of boosted my weekly, uh, you know, finances. Even just doing one or two hours a week on the side would have really been enough to kind of help afford that expensive London lifestyle. (laughs) So that's a long-winded way again of saying that the examiners was really born out of just noticing a pattern that when the students would come to me with their lecture material, after we'd finished the tutorial, they'd often say, "Could you would you mind making me some questions or flashcards or multiple choice questions based on the material? Obviously, they needed to be blinded to the questions. They can't make the questions themselves because then they're kind of making the right answer and four dummy answers and then it's not really revision for them. So they need someone external to do that. And really, just out of my own laziness, I was kind of getting sick of looking through these lecture slides and kind of creating questions and dummy answers for them on the spot. So I thought there must be a way to automate this. In my PhD, you know, I managed to automate all of the image analysis that was coming out of that fancy machine. I did the same in Edinburgh. There was a lot of image analysis. So I was quite familiar with at least the concept of digitized information on a screen in whatever format, if it's A PowerPoint document, that's just information. A PNG picture, a TIFF file from a confocal microscope is just data. You can tell an instructor computer to perform repetitive steps on any data you like, and it can manipulate it in any way. So, yeah, what I noticed was I just set myself the challenge. Can I get this Python script to read out the text from a PowerPoint document? 
okay, I've, I've done that. Now can I get it to pick out just the scientific keywords? And there's libraries, Python libraries, that you can use to extract you know, scientific text from articles. Okay, so now let's rank them by frequency. So what, you know, what is this lecture predominantly about? I've kind of reasoned that you could determine roughly what the lecture was about based on like the top hits for the keywords. If it kept saying mitochondria, chances are it was en an energy module or like, yeah, mitochondrial biology. So using those kind of top hits for what words, keywords, frequencies are coming out, then I just, yeah, started to write a little bit of quite rudimentary software just to try and turn those keywords into full formed phrases. So I thought, how can I get this one word? How can I build it some context and kind of give a find and replace to make a question? You know, so an example might be complex number. What is um, responsible for ATP synthesis in the mitochondria? Well, that kind of statement would be present multiple times in scientific journals. And luckily, if you go on PubMed, they've actually got developer tools where you can download and extract all of the text automatically from scientific articles. So I basically instructed the computer program to basically download everything on PubMed, categorize them by keyword and split them all by sentences. So I ended up with a database with about four and a half, five million individual scientific sentences that all were kind of peer reviewed, grammatically correct, scientifically accurate. And then I just, yeah, did a find and replace on the student's top keywords and put, threw together a website where the student just drag and drops their lecture material we sift out the keywords and then match them in a database of questions that I yeah, already built just automatically. And that really yeah, just sped up my whole ability to generate questions for my students. So yeah, I thought I'd put this live, give it a little bit of advertising, see what comes about. And yeah, you can kind of pay for a, a premium version of the membership 99p a month where you can just download unlimited flashcards based on your, on your kind of lecture material. Wow, that's incredible. I wish I had something like this when I was an undergrad student because I feel like I had, there were so many of these question banks at A-level and GCSE that I could just like learn every potential question that can ever come up on a paper and like memorize all the answers, which is why I think generally my exam results were a lot higher in my A-levels compared to like my degree because there's so much material and it's very difficult to like learn and remember everything and I felt like that there wasn't enough of these past paper type questions and answers to look through to get an idea of the sort of things that come up and also like enough to cover the breadth of information that you're expected to just retain so it sounds like you've developed an incredibly useful tool and in a very very clever and sophisticated way data science is still kind of slightly beyond me I, I struggle to make sense of all these python and r kind of languages but it's incredible that you've like learned how to do that well enough to build a website that can generate these flashcards for students in a way that is useful to them so yeah congrats i will definitely leave a link to the examiners in the show notes well it's interesting you said that it's really difficult and it's sophisticated and you don't feel like you're well equipped to do that but the key point I want to communicate is there is that I basically knew nothing. I'd never coded a website before. I'd never looked at a Python script. I did a little bit of R in undergraduate, just as a part of a, a bioscience module. You do not need to know how to code to start building something with a computer because all you need to do is apply the scientific method. 
So by that I mean, you have a problem. What do I want to do? I want to extract text from a document. You know, how do I do that? Okay, let's Google extracting text from a PDF document. There are so many forums online, programming forums, where they have code snippets of someone's already built this for you. Like they haven't built it for your application. They haven't stitched together all the intricate components, but really the website that I built is really just the stitching together of maybe a hundred different components that are all, someone's already built them. And once you look at the code enough times, it's kind of like learning a language. You know, you see the same repetitive structures, you see the same words repeating up again and again, and you start to learn and kind of intuitively understand what, what is this program doing? What is, okay, this code snippet might be iterating over an array. You know, you've got an array of objects that have like certain words. What's this piece of code doing? And you could, it's human readable. So yeah, I don't want to discourage anyone from trying to start that. If you've got a good idea and it's based on information that can be fed into a computer and understood by a computer, you can do anything with it. And all you need to do is Google, how do I, yeah, do X, how do I do Y, and stitch it all together slowly. The examiners took me probably the first year was just understanding and trying to build a very, very specific part of it. And then as I became more familiar, the rest of it only took a few months. Because like a language, the more you use something, you know, you start to understand the structures and, and how they work. And they're really not, they don't need to be abstract. You're building the code. You can write it to be as readable for you as you want. Facebook and Google software developers, they make their code minified. They try to make it as small as possible so your computer can download it very quickly, which involves them abstracting away a lot of the names of the variables. So it can end up looking really complicated when really it's actually just an endeavor by the software engineers to make that code run as fast as possible. But if you're building a hobby project, you don't need it to look beautiful. My code looks terrible. A professional developer would look at that and think, what, what is this? But it works, you know, it doesn't, you don't need to know how the sausage is made. It works and that's good enough. So everyone should try it. Absolutely. Thank you, Joe. Maybe I'll give this another go. I, I give up very easily when I'm <laughs> not understanding something, but thank you for that encouraging advice. I think definitely for even biomedical, biological scientists who are just wet lab researchers, it's becoming more and more important to learn these languages and apply them to analysis or mining through big data are definitely very important. I mean, can you, can I ask you a question? So you've pr you've probably noticed, right, that in your experience analyzing data, that you're often working in mm. Excel, and you're performing the same copy and paste function over multiple cells, right? You're moving a cell from here to mm. here. You're just repeating the same thing on multiple cells in Excel. I challenge you to try and automate one of your processes. If you've got like yeah, moving data from one tab to the next, build a plugin. It's just called a macro. If you Google how mm. to make a macro for Excel. You can use a macro recorder, so all you have to do is click record, click the buttons you'd usually click, and Excel will build you a short macro that will do that for you automatically. Just challenge yourself to learn how to repeat, tell the computer to repeat that over all of the data in your array. And yeah, it's just be lazy. Everyone should be lazy. We've got computers to help us. This is just data. Be as lazy as you can and challenge yourself because it will make your life so much easier. Spend two days learning it and save yourself two weeks of analyzing it. Yeah, absolutely. You make a really valid point. And yeah, I think I need to get over my laziness of not, you know, shying away from learning something new for two days, as you say, and save myself a lot of time in the future. I have been, you know, getting slightly better at it because I've had to use some R for some analysis, but yeah, 
definitely need to push myself more, particularly for basic Excel stuff as well. I hadn't even, I wasn't even aware that you could make a macro for Excel. So that's good to know. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I'm going to thank you, Joe, for your time. This was a really, really interesting conversation. I've definitely learned lots and I'm sure that the listeners will have as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was really lovely to have you on the show. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. And my kind of pithy final sign off would be you don't have to apply the scientific method to everything to get a good result. Be scientific for your science and be flexible in the search for your scientific inquiry.